You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, Megan, and a happy end of pride to you. End of pride. I know we've, we've bookended it. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Thesis on Joan. I'm Megan. She, her. I'm Holly. They, them. Thesis on Joan is a podcast dedicated to amplifying voices from the LGBTQ plus community in the New York performing arts scene and examining the industry from a queer perspective. Join fan queers and theater professionals, me and Holly, as we sit down with groundbreaking theater folk, from Brooklyn cabaret performers to people backstage and on Broadway. For many queers, theater has been an escape. This podcast looks to have open conversations on where we've come from and where we're headed as a community while queering the canon along the way. Our dreams came true, though, Holly, with this weather we've been having. It's true. But, okay, but we're going, we're recording this on Thursday, so we're going to the Queer Liberation March on Sunday, and it's supposed to be, like, 85 degrees. Yeah, it's going to be terrible. <laughs> <laughs> So it's like every day in the last two weeks in June has been great, except for the day we actually are going to do a queer thing yeah. all together. Well, you know, can't win them all. I'm not wearing flannel to that. But yeah, it's been a weird pride, though. I feel like not as weird as last year, but I feel like this week all of a sudden is like, oh, it's here. Yeah. <laughs> like all the activities. <laughs> yeah. I have been, there's been like a lot of listicles about pride books which i'm always excited about of like queer things to read so i always enjoy like looking through those that might be one of my favorite parts of pride is just like the book recommendations yeah and i feel like now um like publishers this might be totally just me observing things or what i pay attention to (laughs) but publishers are like starting to line up like queer books with like may and june so it's like queer book festivity time yeah well, we are also lining up our queer book club with the Queer Liberation March, so all the queer activities. Yeah. We're reading um, The House in the Cerulean Sea, but there's a quote on the front of my edition from V.E. Schwab that's like, being in a big queer blanket. I'm like, that's <laughs> all I ever want. I never thought it would be so endearing to have a little like alien monster child just really want to be a bellhop. So sweet. I know. This is going to be a mini series. Oh, or yeah. Movie. I I'm, can't I'm wait. Sure it. Yeah. That kind of ties into like my answer to this question, but we're about to take a hiatus for the summer from the podcast. And, you know, this podcast does take up a lot, a significant chunk of our time, I would say, of like recording and editing and, and like 
prepping all the materials and everything. So what, what are you looking forward to during this time off from the podcast to kind of rest and refill yourself if you can? Yeah. I was going to say my answer probably would have been very different like a month ago, but, um, I am currently training to be a special education teacher because the world is wild and, um, theater is inconsistent and I've always loved working with kids. So the next month is going to be me student teaching at a, uh, at a school for summer school. So it's not going to be necessarily restful, <laughs> but I think <laughs> it'll, it'll feel like creative and fulfilling. And, um, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to like grow in a very different way than I have been in a long time. But I think the moments that I'm finding to rest, like there's still, always a lot of content I want to consume, right? My, my to read bookshelf is, it's like, <laughs> oh boy, I think I, so I don't know if I told you this, Holly, I have like a window in my apartment and on the windowsill, I've been putting my to read books so I can like always see them and they like haunt me. So I know what I need <laughs> to read. And I'm almost to the end of the windowsill <laughs> and I don't know what to do. So I need to I need to make some progress. Yeah, I just got one last stop by Casey McQuiston. Oh, so I yay. think that's my next queer read. Awesome. Maybe I can influence book club to do it. Oh yeah. I would love to read that. How about you though? What's, what's going on for you? It's a heavy, uh, celebratory birthday time in this household. Mm-hmm. We are a household of two cancers and our dog is a Gemini and I don't know how that happened, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Lucy, my partner, my fiance now. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> July 7th and mine is July 22nd. So we usually do something celebratory together. I'm glad that like we'll have a little bit of a break where I, I definitely want to read more. I feel like my reading has been really slack in the pandemic from where I want it to be. And I have so many like series on my shelf that I haven't dived into like the broken earth series, the other V.E. Schwab series. Oh, the uh, what is it called overall? It's like a darker shade of magic gathering shadows. Yeah. The darker shade of magic series. So good. I finally, I have all three of those I need to read. I, I have, still haven't read like crazy rich Asians. <laughs> like Really? Uh, yeah. And I have them now. So I, I need to like dive into all of those. Wow. That's, you just named like the most fun series. <laughs> darker shade of magic is one of those books that like I see people on the street. I'm like, I wish I could read it for the first time again. <laughs> Like, enjoy this moment. Can't wait for all your updates on that book. Yeah. And also, I thought of this when I was listening to our last episode. I love that you shared you don't really like the beach because I think my biggest New York association with the beach is your birthday. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Lucy really loves the beach, so. Got it. Very generous. Yeah. Well, I really, I think every year I've been in New York, I only go to the beach once every summer. So (laughs) it usually ends up being for our birthday. Yeah. I think me too. And it's for your birthday. That's great. Well, while we're on hiatus, I know Megan has some shows that she wanted to shout out that folks should check out while we're on a break. Yeah. And I feel like as much as I complained about digital theater early on, it has been nice to just for like time and location accessibly see some, see some things I wouldn't have been able to see otherwise. So that goes, I feel like we're at the last like, 
moments of digital theater this summer. We'll see. I'm, I'm curious what the fall brings. But I want to shout out to um, one is uh, my friend Christian's show, Christian Liu. Um, their show is actually, when you're listening to this, it was yesterday, but ours no. <laughs> <laughs> and it was great. <laughs> But uh, Ars Nova is uh, doing that like pay to stream anything uh, situation with with a lot of shows. So it's going to be up for a long time. And Christian's just one of those amazing people. Their show is called Transmosis. And it's Christian Lewis Transmosis. You're invited to this comedic sketch exploration into the perspective of living while trans and Asian and fat and having a lot of inherent star quality if we're being honest here. And I think that's my favorite <laughs> thing about Christian is the unabashed, um, like self-advocating. And it, it holds up like there. <laughs> And they're singing in it too. So it's worth it just to hear them sing because they have an incredible voice. So shout out for that. And then another show I just came across, I don't know as much about this, but it's streaming uh, New York Theater Workshop. It's called Brother, Brother. And it's by Alicia Harris and directed by Misha Chowdhury. So it's a radio play and I was drawn to it because it's about Appalachia and black banjo music <laughs> and ghosts and Andre de Shields is a ghost and like what's not to love. Yeah. But Misha was also a classmate of mine and um, he directs beautiful stuff. So uh, it would be very cool to, to check that out. I think it's in the audio play, but either way um, would recommend also streaming through July 25th on New York theater workshop. So case you're bored this July. If you miss us, there's some things you can do. Yeah. And if you have a, if you're working on a show or you know of a show that you want us to shout out, we're going to keep an eye on our Instagram. So DM us. We'll, we'll repost things as we, as we find them. And let us know what you think of the shows if you do see them. All right. So as we take our break, this action of the app is super important. We want everyone to call and email your senators to support the Equality Act. So 29 states do not have laws that explicitly shield LGBTQ Americans from discrimination, which results in a patchwork of protections that vary from state to state, as I'm sure many of you know. The Equality Act would extend protections to cover federally funded programs, employment, housing, loan applications, education, and public accommodation. Most legislation requires 60 votes to advance in the Senate, and Democrats, we now have this really narrow majority of 50-50 in the Senate, with the vice president being a tiebreaker. But because we need 60 votes, we need at least 10 Republicans to, to pass this bill as well. So any support that we can give to our senators to back this act, no matter where you are, um, is, is a huge priority and would help get it passed. And this could be brought to a vote at any time, so maybe by the time this episode you're hearing it it has a decision has been made but as much uh, support as we can throw behind it now is great it's time for today's lucky land horoscope with victoria cash life's gotten mundane so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to lucky land you know what they say your chance to win starts with a spin so go to luckylandslots.com to play over a hundred social casino style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. 
In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Today we are sitting down with Javier Rivera de Bruin. And you may remember we first met Javi back in February of this year, which feels like six years ago, at our Queer Amory Live event. So we're very excited to be talking to them again. Javier Rivera de Bruin is a queer non-binary Latinx playwright and impact producer. Their work explores queerness, identity, gender, race, diaspora, and family. Javi is a co-writer on a six-part podcast play, This Is Where We Go, produced by MCC Theater and The Parsnip Ship, available to stream now on all podcast platforms. Their play, Lucianagas, was a semi-finalist for the 2019 New Dramatist Princess Grace Award and is in development with National Queer Theater and the Parsnip Ship podcast. Javi is a member of the Parsnip Ship's inaugural Radio Roots Writers Group, where their play, Happy Birthday Angel Dearest, is in development. And as an impact producer, they have worked with acclaimed documentaries, including Philly DA, Disclosure, Trans and Trumpland, Bedlam, and Roll Red Roll. And they hold a BA from Smith College. All right. Well, Javi, it's so great to talk to you again. I feel like it's been a year yeah. since we last saw you. <laughs> when was that? <laughs> it was only February. But it feels like so long ago. Yeah. It does. Like, what is time anymore? It's all, it's all made up. Yeah. Things feel better now, though? I don't know. Maybe it's just the weather. Well, it's like the rollout of vaccines, I think, makes a big difference. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And just like... I don't know, doesn't make it over, but at least makes it feel like there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Mm -hmm. And announcing like theaters reopening, a date, actually. I feel really nervous about that, but Mm -hmm. (laughs) I don't know. I'm I'm like not, I'm very skeptical of like the, the, you know, like safety versus the bottom line. Like I think the bottom line is always going to win to an extent. Um, Mm -hmm. But we'll see. I mean, it's good good for us to have <laughs> live theater again. <laughs> this seems unrealistic for September, but I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. Yeah. Yeah. I hope it isn't. I like I don't know. I yeah. I, I hope for the hope for the best. Prepare for the worst, expect something in between. <laughs> Probably good advice for, yeah, most of the year. Good way to live. <laughs> and we're like so comfortable with you, so we're already jumping right in. But could you start by sharing your name, pronouns, and anything you want to share about how you identify? Yeah, I am um, Javier Rivera de Bruin, a.k.a. Javi. Uh, my pronouns are they, them. Um, I am non-binary and I am a playwright and documentary impact producer slash audience engagement strategist. Yeah, I hadn't heard of so many of those things, and it was very cool to read and learn more about them and excited to talk to you about it. But starting off, you're part of the Parsnip Ships inaugural Radio Roots Writers Group. What has that process been like, and what are you enjoying and learning from it? Yeah, that's been a lot of fun. Um, and you know, happened at such a weird time, uh, because we started, uh, our cohort started in November, I want to say October, November of 2019. So we started right before the pandemic hit. We actually ended up going on this like really lovely, beautiful writer's retreat in upstate New York. 
on like the first week or second weekend in March, like right before everything shut down. Oh my gosh. Wow. <laughs> which actually ended up being such a wonderful way for me to transition into this like new way of being and sort of like be a little more at peace with like the unknown. Um, cause I was already in a very like introspective state and was like in nature and all of that. So that helped, but, um, yeah, it's been a really cool process. Um, the, there are four of us, um, we're all really different writers with really different styles, but it's been really fun and invigorating to sort of be in the room with people who have to have different styles, have different, um, like things we like to write about different ways that we write. Um, and you know, there it's have challenged ourselves to write collaboratively. We as a cohort worked, uh, with MCC theater to, uh, be write a radio play called this is where we go. Um, that was based on a quote by Octavia Butler, uh, really fitting for the time we're in now. Um, yeah, so it's been really nice to have that. I've found it really nice to have that as as almost like a an anchor in a home base like through all of the madness that's been going on in the world. <laughs> and how long is that group like going to be together working together? Is there a time frame? Well, yeah, I mean initially we were supposed to wrap up last June, but we obviously like took a pause. Um and we're, we're going to be wrapping up this June. Um, we haven't like been meeting regularly. We sort of like separately been working on our respective pieces, but we, the piece that I've been, um, developing with them is actually going to be, um, part of the Parsonship Play Club, which is like a book club, but with plays. Um, so we're going to read a draft of it so that I can have some, some feedback from folks, uh, on May 18th. And yeah, and then I'm looking forward to working on a um, reading of it, on a, a virtual reading of it with the Artist Theater of Boston at some time, TBD in June. That's awesome. And can you tell us a little bit more? This is your play, Happy Birthday, Angel Dearest. Can you tell us a little bit more about the play? Yeah, so Happy Birthday, Angel Dearest started, uh, it, it's, a, you know, a kitchen sink family drama play, but with a magical realist twist, um, as I am want to do. And it really started, uh, it's loosely based on my own siblings, um, 33rd birthday party several years back. It was just a, it was like one of those moments that happens as a writer in life where you walk away and you're like, well, I have to put this on paper immediately because <laughs> I, I can't forget any of, there are just so many like, like odd little details. And, and, and to me, part of, I think what you stuck in my mind about that, that particular birthday party is it not only was it just so, there was so much random stuff that happened throughout the night, but it just felt really like it, encapsulated a lot of my experience with my family dynamic and something that I feel like I have seen and I've, I've start, you know, there are places where I've started to see it represented, um, as a, you know, family with, um, a loved one who deal, who has a serious mental illness. Um, you know, that's like, those are stories that like, we hear about mental illness a lot of the times only through the framework of 
um, you know, young cis white boys who are terrorists committing act of violence. And so there's like so much stigma and a narratives of violence wrapped up in what it is to be someone living with a severe mental illness. Um, and there's so much more than that, you know, there's, there's so much other stuff. Um, there's, there's banality, like, yes, there's struggle, but there's also moments of joy as with anything. And, uh, I have seen like bits of representation around that, but it's always a white family. Um, and it's, it's, there's rarely like queerness thrown into the mix. Um, and so like walking away from this birth, my sibling's birthday party, I was just like, this has to live somewhere. Like, <laughs> So I had taken notes. Um, I actually like on the train ride home, took notes about everything that happened and all like the little odd things. Oh, wow. And then in bringing it to the, the, um, writer's group, what was interesting is I felt like I had to crack open my, my sense of wanting it to be a literal interpretation of that, because what I really wanted is to tell a story about, um, about bonds between queer siblings, about, um, family dynamics dealing with mental illness in a family, about, you know, the, like, just another, a different type of, like, representing a different kind of family in the sort of kitchen sink canon. <laughs> um, and I find that often the easiest way for me to access the the part of my brain that doesn't need things to be literal is through magical realism. Um, so I threw in a time-traveling um, pirate, Johnny the Pirate. <laughs> <Yes>. Amazing. <laughs> Who the na- it doesn't come from nowhere. It's like there. This actually came from a story that a neighbor told us about an actual person who goes or went by Johnny the Pirate, um, who he knew and like was telling us the story at dinner about Johnny the Pirate. And I, in writing this, I was like, well, Johnny the Pirate's going to be in this play. <laughs> <laughs> That's like simple as that. Should be in every play. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. And so Johnny the Pirate kind of like helps us access memory because um, he uses memory, you know, sentimentality and memory become the the fuel that allows for time travel within this play. Uh-huh. That's so cool. And specifically like objects that hold a lot of sentimental value. So in this, in, in um, Happy Birthday Angel Dearest, it's a um, tape recorder it's a talk girl, which I don't know if. Oh yes, you remember what a talk girl is from like <laughs> Home Alone. Yeah, from Home Alone. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, there was the talk boy, and then because it's like gendered toys, they came yeah. up with the talk girl. Which you had is to make purple. a pink one, or it was a purple. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um, that's the that's the thing that sort of takes us through um, the memories of through angels' memories as they're sort of exploring you know past dynamics and family and like some things that are traumatic some things that are happy um yeah so sorry that was the least concise description of this play <laughs> that i possibly could have given got me excited though i can't that's, wait that's angel dearest <laughs> we both signed up for the the parsnip ship book club thing so we're excited to read the play <laughs> yeah, yay awesome. yeah 
And, and also talking about magical realism, your other play, Lucianigas, uh, uses magical realism and fantasy to tell the story. And so do you think then magical realism and fantasy work well with queerness? And, and how do you play with those elements in your writing? Yeah, I think so, because I think that it, uh, a huge part of defining part of queer culture is we are asked to reimagine how we want to relate to the world, to each other, to family, to romantic relationships, sexual relationships. We get to be inventive, you know? Um, and I think that there's, so there's, so to me, there's like a similar energy there in, sci-fi fantasy in magical realism is like we get to reimagine the world we want and a lot of the times we have to because we're not really given representation in the same way although that's changing we're not given sometimes in life we're not given opportunity to build things in a traditional way so we have to um sort of reimagine like what these things look like so i think that um that's not like a, a conscious decision, but I think it just is something that I realize it is an important part of, of things that I write is to like add in the possibility for anything to happen and not be limited by like what feels literally possible. And I think that um, theater is a, it like provides a unique opportunity to do that um, because we already have to suspend our disbelief in watching theater um and in being an audience to it so i think there's just you know why not why not go all out (laughs) yeah definitely here for that and in uh luciana gas you described the play as a story of heritage legacy forgiveness how do you think these themes um play when it comes to the theater community itself the theater community like how would those things apply yeah I, i guess you can answer this like how how do you recognize heritage, legacy, and forgiveness in the concept of, like, your experience in the theater community? That's a good question. Um, I mean, I think that in theater we're often bringing, like, theater, I think, so so much, like, we're, we're bringing our personal experiencing, experiences and transmutating them into something new. Um sometimes into something that's like literally here's my experience and it's more like testimonial sometimes into we're channeling that into the experiences of fictional, you know, characters, right. Of a moment of a place that doesn't exist, but we make it exist. I think that theater, unfortunately, like any other institution has some reckoning to do with, uh, you know, white supremacy, colonialism, sexism, uh, racism, homophobia, all of that. Um, so I think like the, you know, those are all things that it, and I, and like, I don't know, every time I've been involved with anything related to theater, there's always this, um, interesting dynamic of like, you're, you become like a family for a very short period of time. Mm -hmm. And then oftentimes just completely go separate ways and maybe you'll never see each other again. Maybe you run more than likely you run into each other at some other event, or maybe you work on another project together, but there is this interesting moment. So I don't know that I would say, you know, it's hard to think of like heritage, right? Because in, in that I'm thinking of like literally what we inherit um, and generational things. But I mean, I guess that that's present in theater as well on like a less individual basis. 
And I think like any, like with family dynamics, I think there's a lot of, of those same tensions uh, that can be explored in theater. And I think that some of the best productions happen when it feels like a catharsis of, of that, right? Like folks maybe are bringing their different experiences from theater, but are able to sort of, you know, move beyond that to create something new together. Yeah. Megan and I were just talking about um, like the family in IATSE and how those like technical positions are literally families that have been like passed down through generations and like how people of color, trans people like haven't been allowed into those spaces and also applies to artists, to other people working in theater and yeah, how exciting it is maybe now if there's some change to like start creating kind of those heritages and legacies in the theater community. Yeah, well, there's definitely dy- everything's very dynastic in theater, just like in every other industry, um, certainly in the U.S. Um, so there's definitely that sense of like if you're if you're a part of that dynasty, a, a given dynasty, it opens doors, but then it can also exclude folks who are not (laughs) Mm -hmm. completely especially when there's few jobs as there are in the theater to begin with Mm -hmm. which is kind of ridiculous because it's like it takes so many of us (laughs) it it really truly takes a village uh you know like it takes as many folks if not more to make theater as it does to make film and you know i think that that there's plenty of job. I don't know. There's, there's, there should be plenty of work out there. I think that like you run into the, the question of how theater is valued. And I think as entertainment, theater is both, it's like, you know, theater is like the gray gardens of the arts because it was like once great, very opulent, has this like amazing sense of like cultural, like, you know, very hoity toity. <laughs> Like Amazing. you're living in a decrepit house. No one's giving you money anymore. <laughs> you know? You and the cats. Yeah, it's just you and the cats in theater. And so like it's just like it's just not valued in the same way um that TV and film are. And I think that's an accessibility problem. I think it's because, you know, when we didn't have these more accessible mediums where people could connect and really get sucked into a story. Um, you know, it was like, you kind of had to step outside of, of things to like consume media in, in a way, but now it's like, hello, we can stay at home and watch Netflix and Hulu. And like, you know, why do I need to go to a theater? And I think a lot of people, because there's such a financial barrier to like the cost of tickets, um, oftentimes, and like, you know, if you've never been to see a live show, you don't get why it's different. You don't get mm-hmm. why that's something worth doing. Um, and, you know, there's this like really weird, I feel tension between theater that's like, either really, it's like either really highbrow, or it's like, you know, like very Disney-fied. So it's like, either we're talking about like Spider-Man seven or whatever on Broadway (laughs) or we're talking about some, you know, really esoteric and maybe obtuse thing that's hard for people to connect to. Um, And so it's like, if you're not familiar with the medium and that's kind of like what you think you have, I don't know. It's no wonder that like we're losing 
audience. We're not finding ways to like reconnect to audience and we're, we're just not finding people who are willing to put in the money to pay people to do this in the same way. Yeah. And I like, it sounds like your work as an impact producer is kind of trying to bridge this gap too. And can you tell us more about what that means to be an impact producer and what you do? Yeah. Uh, very few people know what the heck an impact producer is. <laughs> so I'm happy to, happy to talk about it. I didn't know that impact producers existed until I was one. <laughs> so sometimes it happens. Um, and so I, I, and I specifically as an impact producer have worked with documentary film, but that does absolutely, I mean, that is absolutely relevant to theater as well. Cause essentially it's, it's audience engagement and actually how I ended up in impact producing kind of was like, in a roundabout way through audience engagement. But impact producing is essentially like when someone makes a film, you make it for a reason, especially with documentaries, there's often like something you're trying to get very concrete. You're trying to get audiences to take away from it, whether that's a, you know, cause, whether that's raising awareness about something or, you know, wanting people to take a very specific action. And the point of an impact campaign, you know, Filmmakers have, it's so much work to make the film and put it out into the world. And, uh, it's a totally different process to connect audiences to like the reason that filmmakers made a film in the first place. It's really easy for that to get lost in just the logistics of distribution. And, um, so as an impact producer, it's my job is to connect. Um, I, you know, I, think of myself as a connector. So it's like, I'm trying to connect audiences with like the, you know, organizers who are working around whatever the issue is that we're talking about is right. Like, and connect students maybe who are learning about something to like, how can we use this film as a tool, right. To like educate people. Um, how can, you know, is this some, something that like policymakers can use to leverage it towards, um, you know, whatever their, their agenda is. So it's essentially about making connections between why we make art and what we do after we consume it and are moved, which sounds really esoteric. A lot of it is just organizing screenings, connecting with, um, you know, with community partners and then creating resources that, that, you know, people can use to like show them what to do next. Um, sometimes that's a website. Sometimes that's like a PDF where you have a discussion guide. So we're helping people lead a discussion about a topic. Um, and then, and really a lot of it comes down to like interacting. How do you interact more, um, with each other around this medium? Um, and prior to working as an impact producer in documentary film, um, I had worked, uh, in um, a theater doing uh, as part of a whole team. It was uh, unique in that they had an entire team devoted to um, audience engagement. Um, and so that looked like um, in theater, that looked like uh, activities that could be done in the lobby before the show and then talkbacks after the show. Um, so it's like the activities were often things that would prime you thematically for what you were about to see. So it could be like a writing post on the wall, uh, you know, where there's like a prompt and, and you're, you can anonymously submit an answer to this prompt. And, you know, like what was the name of your high school band or something like you could <laughs> anything, right? Um, it doesn't have to be like so on the nose, but sometimes it is. 
Um, so I was working, um, at the, uh, Kirk Douglas theater, um, out in Los Angeles when I lived out there and the, we had a front of house manager who was really like, this was, this is what this sort of patron engagement was his jam. And I got hired as part of a team to be, uh, that, you know, implemented that. So that experience really then shifted my sort of like thinking of the ecosystem of like working in theater um, and engaging with audiences. And, uh, you know, like long story short, it really ends up tying in a lot of the skills that I have and that I've used from like many, many, any job you can think of, which I have worked. I have worked as a, a call center for a nonprofit theater, raising money for development. I have worked for, you know, I've done this like front of house work. I've been in customer service forever. Um, I'm a writer. I, uh, for many years was pursuing a path as a, as an actor and a performer as well. So it like took all of these skills and it was something that I'm like, oh, actually, and, and I'm just like a very, I have a Capricorn moon. So I'm a very organized person that like organization makes me feel safe. So <laughs> the combination of all of those things, um, really like ended up pointing me to it, to this. And now how I see it, you know, because this is a, not a path that I sought out and, uh, and you know, it's, it's not really like what most folks would consider a, a day job, you know, like most of the other folks I know who are doing this in some capacity are like, this is what they want to do. And I feel a, a bit of an outlier in that I, I outlier in that I fell into it. Um, and I see it as a, a sort of, um, you know, virtuous circle between the work that I do in audience engagement and impact producing and the work that I do as an artist, as a writer, because I see it as like, okay, well, if I have to have a day job, I'd love for it to be uplifting the work of other artists, really making sure that we're like getting their um, thoughts and ideas out into the world in the way they intended and maximizing the amount of, of impact that a, a given project can have. Um, and it's, you know, like with any day job and like creative pursuit, it, it's a tug of war. It's a back and forth. But I, you know, it does feel, I have reached a point where I feel that I was looking to reach for so many years, which is just feeling like it is all within the ecosystem of a creative community and, um, and a creative community that's like putting things out into the world that I believe in and would, would stand behind. Sounds like such a creative job and just being a theater marketer. I have, it's so wonderful to hear of just like mindful, like, engagement strategies I feel like you see so many lazy like here do this do this and people don't want to get involved and I, I think audiences or people seeing the films can really appreciate and see all of the hard work that you put into like these pursuits it's it's so clear when when it's been well thought out and executed and that's awesome it's so cool yeah I mean I think people have a sixth sense for bullshit when it comes to marketing um and I I think that like it's what's nice about, um, you know, this type of impact work is like it, it, it does draw in a lot of it is sort of a marketing in a way, but it's like, a you know, I don't know. I think of it as like it, but it's like not with the bottom line being like buy tickets to this thing. Right. right. It's like the bottom line is, did you get what we were trying to say? <laughs> Are you going to take action? Will you keep talking about it? Yeah. We yeah. Keep the conversation <laughs> going. Um, 
And I think conversation, you know, of course we need action, but it's like, I think having conversations are what lead to culture change and culture change is what leads to action. So I think like we don't, it's, it's, you can't dismiss the importance of keeping dialogues going. And, you know, it's like art disarms people um, or it riles people up, but it, it helps people connect in uh, with a level of emotionality that I think is required for people to give a shit a lot of the times. And on that note, why, why is it so important for you to move beyond changing people's hearts and minds through art, like taking action and participating and being part of the conversation? I mean, I think that like, this, the surface answer is just like living at the crux of so many identities, like being perpetually in the gray area of like any identity. The, there, it's like, this is all stuff that I have to grapple with. And I think that like a, a degree of compassion and empathy for one another and our experiences, like I think we only grow as humans by learning more about each other. Um, and I think there's so many ways to learn. And, you know, I think that it doesn't have to be like a chore. It doesn't have to be, uh, like a, um, a to-do list, you know, like it can just be come from like uh, organic interest in each other as humans and people. And I think when we create work that, um, comes from that place, like it's interesting to see how that brings people together. I love that thinking of theater or art as like a point of access, uh, and, and like all many strategies on how to get information and content out there. That's awesome. And you said, you know, you mostly be doing this with documentaries. How do you hope that theaters get into this work or continue this kind of work? I think that theaters take for granted a lot that the folks coming into the audience get it. Um, and I think that there's a sense of like, there's, there's like a pomp and circumstance around theater. There's a formality around it. Um, a lot of the times, right. I mean, maybe less so if you're like in a small black box space and you know that you're just like kind of going to, but I, I think like there's, you know, that fourth wall is so strong in theater. And I think that actually is what limits like the takeaways that people can have about a piece. Right. Cause like, if you see something that is really like, you're not sure you get it and you talk about it with other folks, it's like, maybe you're going to have more of a takeaway, not because you're like taking in their ideas and absorbing their ideas. But I think like hearing each other's like hearing how a piece refracts across an audience, like all instantly makes you see things that you didn't consider. And I think that that makes it something interesting to take away. And then it's like, if it is something that's speaking to, like a social issue or personal issue or political issue that people are really passionate about, like talk about it, you know? (laughs) And like that, like just having that, having a thing that like gets people to talk about things, particularly things that people are not going to make room for in everyday, you know, conversation. Um, That's a gift. And I think that we need to use it. And I think that gift can come from even like things that aren't, you know, things that aren't necessarily like a, a play that has like a social justice doesn't have to have like a, a an agenda in that way right like mm-hmm. i think creating space for the audience to be a part of that thinking and that process i think is important i think that's like what connects the dots 
between that and someone walking out of a theater and being like, yeah, I didn't get it. <laughs> or like, or walking out of the theater and being like, oh, that was cute. You know? <laughs> I think about how then like how important like critics and people who write about theater are become in that moment too of like, if someone walks out and is like, oh, I don't get it, but I'll like read the review and then maybe I'll, I'll get it then. And then whoever's writing the review is like an old cis white man. And that's the only perspective people are getting. Uh, I mean, it helps with social media now, but like, yeah, how important those, those voices are. Yeah. And I think like just the whole, I think that the biggest issue about critics, it's like, I don't, everyone should have their opinion. So like if an old white man wants to come and have an opinion, like whatever, but <laughs> like if, if you're the only person, but it's like, who's given access to have those opinion and what is the reach of that? Right. Mm. And like, and it becomes this thing of like, Oh, well, if so-and-so said this is good, you know, it's like, it, it becomes this thing where I think it, it stops people from thinking for themselves about what they actually think of a piece. And if they don't agree with the critic or they have that experience, like you're saying, Hollywood, it's not right. Like maybe they just don't go to theater anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the thing that always worries me is like you go, you don't get it or you don't think you get it. No one's going to have that conversation with you in a way that's like accessible. And you're like, well, I guess I'll just stick to movies or like watching TV at home, you know? Yeah. I think that like people like to read, I think especially for you know, I, and I don't mean this to mean politically conservative, but conservative in the sense of like less adventurous theater goers, um, you know, will read a review to see like, should they see the show? Um, uh, but they'll also read it, I think, to give themselves that primer that we don't have in the lobby, that we don't have in a virtual context, right? Like, mm. of like, what can you expect before seeing this show? You know, we don't have, like, theater doesn't have trailers. There's not, like, you know, like, there there aren't that many things to sort of give us a snapshot of, like, what can we expect? And so reviews become that snapshot for a lot of people. But that is so unfair because that's just a snapshot of, like, through one person's very specific lens. And it's, like, the idea of then they're coming there to, like, provide cultural critique. Like, it's just, I think, the idea that I find you know, boring about critics is like that one person is just given this like level of cultural esteem to be like the arbiter of what is good theater. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So we can talk about (laughs) critics all day. Boo critics. (laughs) (laughs) But yay, some critics. Yay, some critics. No, I mean, well, we should just need to have more and like with people with with different perspectives. More varied. Yeah, exactly. Um, Moving over to your consulting work, you consulted on the documentaries Disclosure and Trans and Trumpland. Can you tell us more about those experiences? Yeah. Um, So Disclosure, uh, I was brought on to work with Disclosure. by uh, the impact producer and um, uh, she's also a co-producer, Eliza Licht. Um, and we had worked together on a previous documentary um, and we're chatting and I knew that she needed support. You know, we were chatting about her wanting support um, for the team that's working on that doc. And um, it was really, a, it just has been such a wonderful experience. I'm, I'm still doing a little work with them, but we're winding down our, our work on that campaign um, it, it's been such a meaningful thing to work on because I see what it means to people. Um, you know, what it, it's something really, really powerful to be able to name where all of these sort of like subconscious things that people think 
about trans folks, like in large part, like where they're seated, right? And when you there's there's something about seeing some of that imagery back to back to back that you're like, of course, people think this, of course, now this is something that has to be unlearned. Um, and I, I think that it's such an important um, piece of history for that. Um, but also, you know, it was exciting because working with the team, um, I really was given a, a good amount of space to think and collaborate, you know, think and collaborate with them on like what kind of conversations I wanted to see happen around this. And, you know, um, because of so much of my work is working with community partners, um, I was really invested in looking like, well, how can we, um, you know, look to orgs that are uplifting the voices of BIPOC trans folks and, you know, the, the intersectional needs of different trans communities, um, because you can't represent all trans people ever, just like you can't, you know, one thing can't represent everybody. Um, and that's, you know, kind of the point, I think, uh, of disclosure, right? But it also looks at um, how complicated, like, the legacy of some of this stuff is. Um, and so it, it just felt really powerful to be in a position where, you know, I could help make conversations happen. Um, about representation, about what that means to different parts, like different trans communities and different people. Um, and then, you know, unfortunately, then there's also like a lot of timely stuff to peg it onto, right? Like we um, had a conversation a few weeks back about all of the really violent, um, you know, bills that have, have been coming out um, against trans youth in sports and preventing trans youth from accessing healthcare. So there's things like, you know, you don't, I, I, I don't know. It feels really rewarding to be able to contribute to a counter narrative about that stuff. Right. Um, it sucks that there has to be a counter narrative, but it feels really rewarding to do that. Um, and, uh, you know, sim- similarly with Trans and Trump Land. So Trans and Trump Land, Tony, the director, is actually my former roommate. So this is one of those, like, small, like, trans mafia world kind of thing. And, um, you know, when he was in pre- – I remember talking about the series with him in pre- when it was in pre-production. Um, you know, we'd just, like, have a chat in the living room about, like, what he wanted to do. And he knew that I worked as an impact producer, so we would, like, chat about, like, what that looks like. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's cool to like, have a moment where you can really hear, like, why a piece is important to the people who make it. Um, because like, you get that in interviews, whatever, you know, but like, but like, I don't know, to hear, to hear like from a really raw organic place, like, what do they want? Like, what's important? And be able to pull that out is something really, um, powerful. And I think particularly for trans creators because as we see in disclosure um we're not in charge of our narratives a lot of the time Mm -hmm. and uh so it's really powerful to work with folks who are um and you know i think what what i've seen true of both disclosure and trans and trump land is it's not just that like there are trans creators at the helm but that the respective teams really like are invested in making space and opportunities for other trans creatives to do their thing. Um, and, uh, in disclosure in particular, I, so I was not a part of the, the production process. I typically come on when, um, a project is in post-production. So they're like editing 
But part of the production model for disclosure was if there was always to hire someone who was trans. And if you can't hire someone trans, they had a, a fellowship and a mentorship program going on. So they would hire someone and then hire a trans fellow who could learn, um, you know, who could, could learn the respective job, which is especially powerful. You know, like, I think that that's something in, in film. And I think this is something that we could see in theater as well, right? Like in these unions where it's like, it, I don't know, it's like a way to crack into the, these like technical unions and yeah. technical jobs that like a lot of trans folks may not have had the access to like, uh, you know, the, that type of t- particular type of technical training or film school that would like allow them to be in that space. Um, so that in particular, I thought was really cool and really exciting. Yeah, that's an amazing practice. Is there anything else like that from working in documentaries that you wish like theater would take up? I wish theater would, I like, I wish that there was as much energy around integrating with the community and an engagement as there in theater as there is in that from what I've seen in docs. I, I think that it exists, you know, but I think it like it exists with like small independent theater, you know, it, I, I don't see it existing as much in spaces with like big institutions that have been around forever. Mm-hmm. Um, and particularly like not to make everything about Broadway. Cause I think that uh, I won't give my hot take on Broadway, but <laughs> <laughs> I think that like, but like, you know, because so much of that is like n- built around like production companies that are like, it's like, we're just going to do a show. Like they, they don't really have a sense of place you know, so a lot of, so then, but then there's like bigger nonprofit theaters that do really have a sense of place and community, but like, I really don't feel like many of them are using it to engage with people outside of like, who is their subscriber base. Mm -hmm. And as a result, I think that their subscriber bases are just going to keep shrinking because they're not actually doing anything to expand that. They're not actually hearing like what people want and need. So I wish that there was as much interest in like involving community in our work as theater makers, as I've seen there be in uh documentary, because I think documentary, like you inherently kind of like have to get your, you want to get people to care. Right. And you want to get people to do something. So yeah, I would love to see that. I would love to see like the, like, cause the fact is in, in, impact producing in documentary film is something that like is not new and is still new. Like it's still something that like, even within the doc field, there are many folks who haven't worked with impact producers, but it's catching on and people are seeing the value of it. And I'd love to see people that level of like value and audience engagement catching on in theater. Cause like, mm-hmm. what are you without your audience? You know? closed your great your great gardens without your audience <laughs> yeah. yeah i feel like the goal of theaters is like butts in seats and for documentaries it's something after that yeah that's so true i mean it's butts in seats in a different way but it's like you know i think there's a portability to documentary that like lends itself to that like let's just try to have this have the biggest reach as possible mm-hmm. whereas with theater we're like no come to us but like I don't know. I think the most exciting and invigorating thing about the way that the pandemic has forced us to look at theater is you can't do that. Literally cannot physically do that. So it's like, you're going to sink if you don't think about ways that you can bring your content 
to people. And yes, it's different. It's always going to be different if it's like a virtual, something virtual versus if it's something in person. So, you know, I feel like it's sort of that like perfect is the enemy of the good. So are you just going to say that they're not going to have any interaction with these experiences? And like, I'd be interested to see, I mean, this isn't really, I don't think this would really help on the like barrier of cost for people to (laughs) interact, but like, you know, we we have all of this um, like virtual reality stuff coming out with, with films, right. Where it's like VR is being used to have like screenings in really different ways. Mm -hmm. But like, I don't know if there's anything that VR would be really cool for it's theater. Cause like it, you still don't get that, that experience of like the energy of an audience that is, I don't think is replicable, but you do get an immersion that I think theater really does allow you. Um, that would be like in a different way. Yeah. I'd be excited to see it. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. And then final question before we go into our last sections, how, how does your work as a playwright and a producer then influence one another? Um, you know, my work as a playwright influences my impact producing by, you know, me thinking about how I'm telling a story, um, because engaging with an audience is inherently telling a story. So, obviously you're using the literal method of storytelling, which is the film, but then like even creating a dialogue, like what is the story that's being built out of that? And like, what is the story we're telling about this doc before people even see it? Mm-hmm. Um, so playwriting very much. And, and just like the, the sense of having come from the theater world, which is so collaborative, um, you know, really gives me that, I, I think brings me into the space of like, Cool. So like, how, who can I reach out to who has a skill set? Who can do this? How can I, you know, it's like that sort of like a stone soup kind of process. And, um, I think that really, um, has helped with my impact work with outreach because like, for me, it's exciting to like connect with someone and be like, Oh, you need this and we need this. Like, how can we make this work for each other? That's exciting. And I think a lot of that energy comes from, from my experiences in theater. Um, particularly in queer theater, there's like a lot of that energy. And then how my work as an impact producer has affected me as a playwright is it's really made me think of like the, ex- the of building an experience around a piece, right? And like, it's really easy as a playwright to just get so lost in the world of the story you want to tell that you forget that other people are hearing that story. And that doesn't mean that like how ever, because everyone's going to perceive a play differently. So it doesn't mean that it's like I'm making this for, for folks to perceive it as like, I can't micromanage how the audience receives a play, but like in a way I feel like being an impact producer has helped me release as a creative because I've seen like, you know, it's really easy to say like, well, I want you to have this specific conversation. I want it to go like this. And here's what I want. Here's like the body that I want you to pull out of this fire. Like, (laughs) But you can't, but, but maybe they're going for the photo album. Maybe they're going for the cat. You can't tell the audience what's important to them. So, and I, and I think seeing, being on the other side of that process has helped me be a little less precious with like my own work. I'd love for people to get what I'm throwing out there in the way that I intended it. But then sometimes people will say stuff where like, 
well, you're a lot smarter than me because I sure didn't put that in there on purpose. <laughs> so like, yeah, let's go with that. <laughs> Very cool. I, I think, yeah, all audience engagement should be rebranded as impact producing when Broadway returns. But thank you so much for sharing about that. Um, we're going to jump to a section we call Queering the Canon. Is there, I love like how much we've talked about Grey Gardens, um, which is already inherently queer, but is there a player's story that you'd like to write a queer adaptation of? I mean, let's say Grey Gardens. Grey Gardens is queer, but it's like queer by, by association. Mm -hmm. Or like fandom. <laughs> yeah. Um, but let's say Grey Gardens. I'd love to see a like queer Grey Gardens. Yeah. You know, of like, especially if it's not, I would love, to, especially like a uh, queer gray gardens, maybe that's not family, right? That's like two, two aging queens and like not have any like sexual romantic tension between them. Like keep it mm -hmm. platonic, but like look at this like very weird specific world that they have created. Yeah. That queer community, that would be so nice. And there's like such a lack of stories and plays about queer community that is platonic. So I'd love to see that. That's true. And and in a weird way, I feel like the thing that is, like, sad when you watch Great Gardens is, like, they don't have community. And that's why they're, like, on this fantastical little island by themselves. Mm -hmm. And I think that, like, I don't know, there's so much conversation about the queer community and, like, it undeniably exists. And yet, I know so many people who feel like they're isolated within that community who are like, well, yeah, it's there, but I'm sort of like, you know, a wallflower mm -hmm. to the queer community, right? Um and I think that is similar to, to that, right? Like, it's like, we have our little, like, sub-communities and our little, like, our homies who, you know, we create community, we create community with. And whether that ties into, like, the, the broader queer community in your area remains to be seen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and then our queer culture, Rex. Uh, so outside of theater, what would be your queer culture indulgence? Well, I mean, I've been doing, I've been reading a lot of really cute queer YA novels Yay. this year or like that. I think, I don't know. I've been really getting into YA in a way that I feel like, because I feel like now there is queer YA in a way that there wasn't when I was growing up. And so I, I it feels a bit like a reclamation of like the possibility in adolescence of like, getting excited about things in a specific way. So like I just uh, recently read the book Cemetery Boys um, by Aidan Thomas. And it is like the sweetest little like gay trans love story. That's also about like brujeria and like ancestral shit and like, uh, you know, life and death and class and like, I don't know. It's great. It's a really great book. So that would be my like queer wreck. Yeah. Um, indulgence. It's really fun. <laughs> Amazing. We love queer YA. So, and I haven't read that one. Oh, so yeah. excited. <laughs> if you think of any more, just send them our way. Always ready. <laughs> Absolutely. I have on my to read list it, that's been on my to read list for a minute, but the next one I'm getting to that I'm really excited is called Felix Ever After haven't read it yet so we'll see but. i think i just followed you on goodreads so i'm just gonna add yes. it to my to read <laughs> i'm about to do that i read really random stuff so there might be some stuff that you're like what <laughs> a book on mushrooms but like <laughs> <laughs> sounds cool <laughs> 
I know. I'm always waiting for my like relatives in Ohio that follow me to be like, where's all this erotica? (laughs) (laughs) No one comments on it. So there you go. (laughs) Gotta have a mix of everything. And then for our queer gift section, you wanted to shout out the third wave fund. Would you like to tell us a little bit more about why you love them? Yeah. um, Third wave fund is an intermediary fund. Um, and it is youth led, uh, it is BIPOC led, um, it is trans led. Um, and I feel like there's, they, they just, they fund a lot of really cool, like community organizers. And, um, what I see that's cool is they don't, don't just fund, they like do really go above and beyond in terms of like creating community space and resources. Um, and like, I've never really seen a lot of other philanthropy places talk about how much they want to end philanthropy. (laughs) And I think that is really, really dope and important. Um, So I think that, that, and you know, the nice thing about an intermediary fund is like, if you find that you like jive with their, uh, you know, politic and their, you know, their, um, social agenda. It's a great way if you're not sure how to support, because there are so many orgs that you can support, it can be a great way to do that. Um, because they've essentially like curated all of these amazing organizers doing really dope work, um, who, who they can send money to and like help support as they grow. Right. Um, cause like, especially in the, in, you know, the day and age where you can see like, uh, an org will like blow up overnight because they go viral mm-hmm. on Instagram, but it's like, how, how will they then have the like institutional capacity to like keep that up? Mm-hmm. Um, and a, and a, you know, I think a, a fund like third wave is like great because they will also provide some of that like, uh, advice and guidance, um, from what I, from what I know. And yeah. And then also they just have a really amazing fund right now called the sex worker giving circle, um, which I believe is first of its kind in terms of like by and for sex workers. Um, and it, it's, I think that, so I, I just think that that, that is right now really a frontier of like where a lot of progressive folks, uh, will stop their progressiveness mm. <laughs> is at sex work. Um, and that is so inherently, that's such a, you know, to, to be, uh, you know, a swerf is so like inherently, transphobic and homophobic and it's just and misguided so mm-hmm. I, I think it's really cool to see an org that's like uplifting and explicitly supporting sex workers awesome thank you and then how do folks follow you online oh my gosh why um <laughs> <laughs> so first they'll like brace themselves for it being very random and not like branded or curated books <laughs> on mushrooms it's gonna be great um I, I think of all my handles are, um, Mix Javi Guapex, M-X, uh, J-A-V-I-G-U-A-P-X. Um, that should be my handle for Twitter and Instagram. And, um, I don't know if that's my Facebook, but don't follow me <laughs> on Facebook. <laughs> People are going to want to follow you on Goodreads. Though, yeah. That, so. <laughs> I would like legit forget that other people can see my Goodreads. It's like for me, myself and I, and then someone will like, like or comment on something that I've updated. And I'm like, Oh, <laughs> I forgot you were all in here. <laughs> Amazing. 
Wait, can you give us your hot take on Broadway really quickly, though? Oh, yeah. Oh, it's just like the most, it's just like the most boring theater. Yeah. It's just boring. <laughs> it's just boring. Broadway is boring. There's some, obviously that's a very broad generalization, but it's like, it's the least, uh, it's the least imaginative space for theater mm-hmm. and yet becomes like the thing that sets the tone for theater everywhere. Boring and pricey. Yeah, expensive and boring. It's like all <laughs> all flash and no substance. Which look, I would not be a self-respecting queer if I did not love flash and <laughs> sparkle and pomp and circumstance, but like I don't know, give me something that's not like SpongeBob, please. I worked on SpongeBob. <laughs> well, I don't know, maybe <laughs> Maybe SpongeBob is amazing and I should shut the fuck up. But there, but you know, like (laughs) there was like really fun gender play with SpongeBob. Mm -hmm. Okay, SpongeBob was very queer, actually. Yeah, weirdly, that's good to know. And like, not even I don't know, or like you know, even like the stuff that that holds itself as more like highbrow. Um, obviously, there's some great stuff in there too, but it's also just like. I don't know. It's so much of like a cult of whatever is the thing that everyone has mutually decided is the best thing. And then they're going to forget about it in like a year. (laughs) (laughs) That's true too. I can't even win. Like remember what won the Tony like the previous year when we're in the next year. (laughs) Thank you so much for being with us again. Uh, This was an amazing time. And yeah, it's just so much fun. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you all for making this space. Thanks so much for listening. We, uh, again, are going to be on a hiatus over the summer, so we'll see you again this fall. And stay in touch with us. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Thesis on Joan. We love to hear your queer culture recs and ideas for queering the canon. Send us an email at thesisonjoan at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 845-445-9251. Come back for more interviews, fun queer content, recommendations, and discussions on current theater. Until next time, keep it queer. Not that it'd be that hard for y'all to do. <laughs> We're reading um, the house. Is it on the? I think or it's by the? In the? What is the? In the? Okay. <laughs> so none of those. <laughs> That's true. It is an island. The house in the cerulean sea. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.